Um, that is described as I've been to the mountaintop speech. Sorry, I'm going to walk over here so I can see my notes because I don't remember as much as I used to. Because I'm old. Um, you have no idea, man. What have I said that before? That was a joke. No, uh, thank you, Joel, again for setting that up. Uh, that is um, sometimes uh, described as rivaling his I have a dream speech as his finest hour uh, when it comes to public address. He was, of course, very uh, verbose and, and uh, an excellent public communicator. But what I wanted to do is draw um, just a quick illustration or at least a um, uh, sort of map his story onto Jesus' story a little bit, um, just so you could get some glimpse of uh, this Jesus coming down from the mountain and the transfiguration. And uh, <clears throat> he compares himself here to Moses, and Moses going on top of, we see the beginning of Deuteronomy where, where God promises Moses and says, you're not going to enter into the promised land, but... I'm going to show it to you, and I'm going to take you up on top of this mountain. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, we see that. He, he goes up onto Mount Nebo in uh, Deuteronomy 32, 4, 32, 32, right? And uh, he takes him up on the mountaintop, and he shows him the promised land, which he himself will not enter. And he compares himself to that. And, um, and just like Moses... He has seen a day where the, and he calls it this, Martin Luther King Jr. calls it this, the dangerous selflessness of the few leads to the happiness of the many. Just like in Moses on Nebo, Martin Luther King Jr. saw a day when the dangerous selflessness of the few led to the happiness of the many. And like Elijah ascending to the chariots of Israel, he sent his heirs back into the promised land to inherit a double portion of his spirit. There's a lot of parallels then between Moses and Elijah. They, Elijah arises outside the promised land and then sends Elisha back in to split the waters and go in. And he actually, Elisha traces the steps of the people of Israel when they first entered the land as a call to the kings of Israel to remember that God gave them this land. And Elisha then becomes that new Joshua who conquers the land for, for God and says this is, his, this is his land of promise. But after Martin Luther King's death, uh, after the coming down from the mountaintop, as it were, when he says, I might not enter it with you, but I, I can see that you're the generation that's going to go in. After he comes down off the mountaintop, there were those who could see the breaking in of the promised land come about in a different manner. Uh, for instance, and you might know this name, Stokely Carmichael. Stokely Carmichael was a very prominent civil rights leader who chose a different path than Martin Luther King Jr., and some of it might be exaggerated, especially depends on what port you, report you want to read as to whether uh, the FBI is exaggerating reports and downplaying the civil rights movement or as to whether he actually is kind of a terrible person. But he had up the, headed up the, the Black Panther organization. And if he didn't encourage it, he at least condoned violence. He was in Washington, D.C. on April 5th, 1968. And when he learned that... Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated in Memphis. He went on television and said, riots and violence are going to happen. It's inevitable. He, he went back and said, well, I didn't encourage it. And basically he just condoned it and said, well, this is terrible. I f you probably feel like rioting. Well, I guess that's going to happen. And this is just, 
And you, you get that the most damage to any movement comes from within, right? That's where you're going to impede the progress of a vision, it comes from within. And especially when it comes into how you enter into happiness. How do you want to enter into the promised land? And how you enter in is going to determine what it looks like. How you enter into happiness determines the shape of that happiness. How you, how you enter into happiness determines the shape of your happiness. And uh, I kind of want to push those ideas uh, aside maybe a little bit. Hopefully they'll reemerge as we, um, as we get into this story in Matthew. But uh, in parallel to that, Jesus brought his disciples to the mountaintop. He takes with them Peter, James, and John, and goes onto a high mountain. Uh, we know that he'd recently been sort of outside the promised land, accessory of Philippi, and then we know that right after this passage, he gets, gets into Galilee. And whether this is inside or outside the promised land, I don't know if it makes too much difference. It definitely is kind of that idea of, I'm taking you to the mountaintop to see the kingdom of God, which isn't exactly as you thought it was. It's me. <laughs> I'm taking you up to the mountaintop to see me. I want you to enter in by faith to the kingdom of God which is the glory of God and the power of God revealed in the cross of Christ. Jesus is the kingdom of God, and we enter into that kingdom through faith in the power of God and the cross of Christ. And then we experience that kingdom in the cross of Christ. And then we also look forward to the inrushing of the glorious kingdom come. But on the way down from the mountaintop, coming back to the crowd, Jesus is confronted by a father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus' disciples and, and couldn't find healing or the kingdom of God from them. Uh, so let's go ahead and read Matthew 17, 14 through 18, and we'll get into this a bit. Um, they've just had, just these three disciples have just gone with Jesus up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're coming back down. And when they came to the crowd, a man came to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Now there's a little bit more to that story, which we'll get into. But right now, I just want to point out two things from this. Uh, the first of which is that the word that Jesus uses to describe this generation is translated as perverted and faithless. You unbelieving and perverted, not believing, not faithless and perverted. This is the only time Matthew uses this word perverted. Um, in fact... You get to Luke's account, and I think this is the only, oh, Mark, Mark's account, that word only shows up one time, and it's right here in this story. And Luke, I think it shows up twice, and it shows up one of those times is right here. But for our purposes, Matthew is only using this word one time, and it kind of means um, crooked. Um, it means, in a broader sense, sort of turned around, twisted, turned the wrong way. That's kind of the literal take on it. It's just turned the wrong way. And if you, if you rewind that back into the Old Testament, in Numbers 32, 
It's the story of, uh, and you remember when Israel is finally, it's Joshua's at the helm, and they're finally about to enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And they come to the Jordan River itself, and Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh choose to stay on the far side, outside of the land that God promised to Israel. And they want to not enter into the inheritance. And they give good reason for it. They say, well, you know, what? not good reason. They at least give an explanation and say, hey, we'll go and help, and we won't rest until everybody can rest. But we're going to stay outside of the land of promise. And Joshua turns to them, and, and well, I'll let his word speak for himself. Uh, and Joshua says in, in Numbers 32.7, Why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? And that word discouraging is the same word. It's making crooked turning away. Why are you standing at the Jordan River and turning the people back to Egypt is basically it. Why are you turning them around? Now, why are you discouraging, turning around, making crooked the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? They are causing the kingdom people to be crooked and turn the wrong direction. They are bringing about their confusion, disorientation, and the beginning of their end. Right? They're standing at the gates to paradise and saying, we're not going to go in, you know, it's, it's all right over there, I guess. But, and they're causing confusion, they're causing disorientation. That's this word. God's saying, or Jesus is saying in Matthew, that's what this generation is doing. The same thing that Reuben and Gad were doing at the banks of the Jordan is what they're doing here on the way down the Mount of Transfiguration. You're confusing and disorienting people. And secondly, the second point ties in with the first. I want to point out with whom Jesus takes issue. Certainly he casts out a demon, and he rebukes the enemies of God. And he is definitely doing this for the sake of the crowd, as well as the father and son. But with his, who he's taking issue with here, the people that he's rebuking, or he's saying you're disorienting and causing confusion among the people, are the disciples. He's really taking issue with the disciples because they're the ones who he's given the keys to the kingdom. He's, he's walked with them for years. He's gone up to the mountaintop. He's shown them the kingdom of God. He's saying, it's time to go in, lead the people to the kingdom of God, and bring them happiness. Bring them rest in the glory of the cross. I'm giving you the keys. Now go bring people to rest. And what happens? These, these new inheritors of the keys of the kingdom from the, on the base of the mountaintop, a father comes to them and begs to be let in. I want that, that new humanity that you're offering. That's what I want. I want it for me. I want it for my son. Please bring my son into the kingdom. There's, if there ever was a seeker-sensitive movement, this is the ones they're looking for. These are the seekers. They want desperately into the new humanity that Jesus is offering through the cross, and they can't let them in. They're basically standing at the gates of paradise saying, Egypt was nice, wasn't it? You know, I, There's some nice spots in the wilderness. Maybe if you look around, there'll be some water from the rock still. You know, they're, just, they're confusing people who desperately want into the kingdom of God. The leaders who come after him will have the greatest impact on the Christian community. Not those who oppose it or are those outside of it. 
And this is just kin, I think, to Stokely Carmichael. The biggest threat that Martin Luther King's dream has is, seems to me, <laughs> Black Panther movement or the violence movement. And he says earlier on in the speech, he's just going on and on about, this is a non-violence movement. As soon as there's violence in this non-violence movement, there is no promised land. Because how you enter into the land shapes what the land looks like. If you can enter into the land through violence, then what you're entering into is Egypt. Even if you're the oppressor and they're the oppressed, all you've got is Egypt. That's all there is if you can enter into it by violence. Something akin to that here. If you can enter into the promised land by trying harder, then there is no promised land to get into. Jesus takes his disciples on a high mountain and shows them the kingdom. He shows them his glory. And now the people at the base of the mountain are confused and disoriented, faithless and crooked. They would turn back when they are so close because those within have given up the faith. <clears throat> All right, on the heels of that, let's get 19 through 21. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. In Numbers 14, we find possibly the most tragic incident of sin and consequences in the history of man. One of the most tragic, we'll at least say that. Certainly, Calvary was a tragic incident of sin. But Numbers 14 describes the people of Israel choosing not to enter into the Promised Land. They've sent out 12 spies, they've received a conflicted report, and Numbers 14 is the is the national thumbs down for forward movement. Let's not go in, they say. Uh, Kadesh Barnea, right? Kadesh Barnea, the national thumbs down for entering. Basically, they say, the ten, ten spies say no. The nation says no. And so God says, no it is. Back into the wilderness. This is the same consequence the sins of each Adam brought about. Jesus is the last Adam. He's not the second. He's the second man. He's not the last. He's not the second Adam. Like I said, he's the second man described in the New Testament. But he's described as the last Adam. And certainly, Adam was an Adam, as it were. But so also was Noah. Noah was brought about a new... A new humanity. From him flowed all of humanity. And then he sinned because of the fruit of the vine. He sinned because of the vineyard. And, and we get this weird introduction of sin and this new kind of humanity. And then we get Israel as a new kind of humanity who is presented with fulfilling their covenant. And they fall short. And they get booted out. And every time they're presented, Adam, Noah... Israel are presented with the conditions of their covenant and said, honor this covenant between you and God and I will usher you into the promised land and every time they fall short and are driven east away from the land. It's this pattern, this pattern of falling short and falling short and falling short. God's son, like Adam and Noah before him, failed and were driven east. 
And then in this chapter, I want to point out, God says of Israel in Numbers 14.11, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? And later, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. The people who had seen the glory of God at work ten times over, and each time they did not put their trust in Him, they refused to believe. In fact, leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments, and this is interesting, leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel are said to have believed in God. Three times, in fact. God said, go into the wilderness, and they believed Him and went into the wilderness. God said, I will meet you at Mount Sinai, and they believed Him went to Mount Sinai. And then after the giving of the Ten Commandments, it never says they believed God again, ever. But ten times it says they disobeyed and they did not believe. And this culminated in the refusal to go into the land. They had been to the mountaintop, but they would not enter into God's rest because they did not believe in the power and in the glory of God. I think this is akin to the disciples had been to the mountaintop, and yet their primary marking was they lacked faith. In fact, you of little faith is what it says. This is a word that Matthew made up. Little faithness. It's nowhere else. He, he made it up. That's, well, how can I describe you? Well, I have to make up a word. You get little faith. So little, it minute, less than what we would call a mustard seed. That was the distinguishing feature of those who held the keys to the kingdom of God. And interestingly, he said, if you will but have faith to enter into this kingdom, just like Israel and Noah and Adam before you, if you would have just fulfilled the covenant by faith, not only would I have brought you into the, the, the promised land, not only would I have brought you into rest with God. Oh. I'm sorry, bud. But you could have taken the mountain with you. That was the point. Um, it's terrible. I know. I'm sorry. Ari was happy. And uh, just, uh, just to conclude then, as I reflect on this, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I wonder what kind of rest we are called into and how we fall short of it. Uh, that's kind of what, the question that runs through my mind as I finish. Um, what kind of a rest are we called into and how do we fall short of it? How do we try to gain the rest of God and why is that causing us to fall short? Um, 
How are we trying to enter into God's rest apart from this radical faith in God which moves mountains? And what kind of what shape are we giving to rest with God by how we're trying to get in? How are we shaping what peace with God looks like, at least in our minds? How are we shaping what the Christian life and what the life to come looks like by how we're trying to enter into it? All that Israel had after they were given the law was the law. All they had to offer anybody. They would not fulfill the covenant with God by faith. They just wouldn't. They'd fall short. Again, these ten times it said. Every time God displayed His power and His glory, He would bring them to the land. He would, and, and it's, when they fell short is when God gave them water, God gave them food, then He gave them more manna, and then He gave them more manna, and then He gave them water again, and then He gave them a covenant on Sinai, and then they, every time, He gave them the land, He showed them the land and how great it was. These are the times that they didn't have faith. When they were showed something fantastic. When they showed something wonderful. God displayed his power and they wouldn't trust the power of God. And so they didn't have faith. And they tried to earn whatever they were given. Again and again and again. I'll strike the rock. I'll collect more food than I need so I can be self-sufficient. I'll turn around at the edge of the promised land because we can't get in there by our own strength even though God's promised it to us. We'll build our own calf and say that this calf got us out of the land of Egypt. Again and again and again when presented with the power of God that's when they failed to believe him and all they clung to was the law that now shaped their lives and they wouldn't fulfill the covenant by faith. And I look at this coming down from the mountaintop and the disciples are presented with a man who desperately wants into this new kind of humanity. And all they have to offer them are, well, it wasn't prayer and fasting. They didn't have this radical trust in something greater than themselves to offer him. They'd seen the vision of God, and they had nothing to offer except the law. And the law just won't get you into any kind of paradise that Jesus is offering. It gets you into some sort of legal paradise in which... Right and wrong are at least well defined, if not experienced. Um, and they had nothing to offer this father and son who, on their knees, are begging to be led into the kingdom. And God says to them, If you would have faith just a little bit, that would be enough not only to move them into the kingdom, but to pick up this whole mountain and throw it over there, too. I just think. Um, I, I just reflect on that. And uh, what are we, where are we falling short? If all they had, like Israel in the wilderness, was the law, then they could not even allow in those who longed in. Because of the shape of your happiness is determined by the way into that happiness. But if by faith you enter into rest with God, happiness is the finished work of Christ. So it, happiness needs to be what God says it is. If by faith you enter into rest with God, happiness is the finished work of Christ. You will find your happiness in that. But I think it's worth reflection. Um, how are you trying to enter into God's rest? And what are you looking forward to? What, what happiness, what 
what happiness are you looking forward to in God? And if there isn't anything there, it's because you're trying to get into it the wrong way. That's the reflection I guess I would have for you. If, if there's nothing you're looking forward to, if you're not looking forward to rest with God, if you're not longing for rest with God, it's because you have reshaped what that looked like by how you're trying to enter into it. But if by faith you're trying to enter into God's rest, happiness is the finished work of Christ. Um, I would say 